All right, now let me shift gears on you a little bit. <laughs> From this sweet, poignant, pretty picture of Advent and um, anticipation, anybody ever reached a point at a time, a place with a person where you just felt like or literally said, All right, that's enough. Remember, parents are like, uh, yeah, yeah. You watch, you listen while your kids do something, and, and it's getting on your nerves, but you overlook it, right? It's just, you know, they're just having fun. They're enjoying things, and you're just overlooking it. And you think they'll stop, but they don't stop. Matter of fact, it just increases and abounds, and after a while, all right, that's enough. Stop it. Quit. No more. That's enough. Which means you've reached a point where you will not allow that thing to go on anymore. That's enough means stop it. Right? Well, we've had uh, many such instances in our parenting past. But Amanda and me refer back to one in particular that sticks out to us. Someone had given baby Hannah at this time... One of those types of candy, like you have a sucker and you dip it in powdery, sugary stuff. Like Fun Dip, but it wasn't Fun Dip. It was like, you know, one of them fluorescent, translucent suckers that you lick and then you dip it in the sugary stuff and it's it's just nasty and it's making a mess. Well, this was green and as Hannah was getting her slobber all over it, it was turning black, okay? And Amanda's videotaping, it's a babe. Well, she was probably what, two or three? I don't know, probably two-ish. And so, oh, look how cute. And she's got it all over her face, and it's all over the high chair, and, you know, it's on on the tray. And Amanda's like, oh, look how pretty. And she's just ooing and aahing and laughing and joking. And then there comes a point in the video, and I wish I had it to show you because it's it's potent, it's powerful, where it just hit her. Just all of a sudden after the, oh, where it hit her, the, hey, wait, this is gross. And it's way more messy than I thought it was going to be. This green is now black. It's all over everything. It's sticky. And it's like a switch flipped in her. And she took on full mom voice tone and said, okay, that's it. That's enough. And like you hear the, the camera kind of rattle a bit and it turns off. And, you know, we, she didn't kill her. So that, that's good. We know that she's still alive. But she had just reached a point. She had reached her threshold. She'd had enough. And candy and playtime was over. Now it's time to clean up and undo the mess that had reached its peak and maximum. And no more mess was going to be tolerated. And I think she was mad at the candy, not at Hannah, by the way. I don't think Hannah's just two years old and black lips and sticky all over. Well, today we reach the seventh of Jesus' seven woes in Matthew 23. And it's kind of an all right, that's enough moment. It's exactly what's going on here. So we're going to read from Matthew chapter 23, and we're going to read verses 29 to 36. And we won't quite finish Matthew 23. That'll be next week, Lord willing. But if you would please stand as we read from the Holy Scriptures, the very words of God, as Jesus, the God-man, speaks here in 23, verses 29 to 36. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. 
Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Let's pray. Father, I pray that today we would be able to receive what you have to say to us in these harsh words that Jesus spoke to the scribes and the Pharisees. God, that we would be able to take them in, understand them, and that our lives would be changed as a result of coming in contact with them. God, help us to not be hypocrites. Help us to live out what you teach us and what you show us here today for your glory and for the good of the world that you love so much. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. It's a pretty, pretty tough passage, y'all. Pretty heavy. But these last couple weeks for sure have been, and this one is no different. As a matter of fact, it's probably, a, like I said, a peak here in these woes. So we'll start in verses 29 to 30. <clears throat> Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So we begin our final of the seven woes, having looked at three last week and three the week before that. And Jesus has turned his focus of, of his last public address to the religious leaders of Israel, the scribes and the Pharisees. <clears throat> and in this blistering monologue, he has condemned them, pronounced woe upon them for shutting the door to the kingdom in people's faces, for scheming on how they could lie and get away with it, for meticulously tithing spices while neglecting justice, mercy, and faithfulness, for cleaning the outside of their cups and plates while leaving the inside full of greed and self-indulgence, and he has condemned them for being like whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones. And in these condemnations, in these woes, Jesus has pulled no punches in denouncing these phony play actors, these hypocrites, and he has made it clear that judgment is coming upon them due to all of these things that we just mentioned. And now, in today's passage, in the final woe, Jesus addresses not just false attitudes and actions, but their true bloodthirsty nature and zeroing in on their desire to literally kill those who oppose them, including him. <clears throat> and we start with verses 29 and 30, which begins with the familiar refrain by now, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. And we've seen in the past... The pronouncement of woe is a declaration of coming disastrous judgment. And it sits in opposition to the blessedness of the Beatitudes of Jesus' first public message in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. And these woes that he's pronouncing here in Matthew 23 are coming upon the scribes and Pharisees, those who were viewed by themselves and by most others in the culture of the time as the examples of public piety 
and religious fervor. But, Jesus points out over and over and over in chapter 23 and in previous chapters as well, that these seemingly God-loving and God-fearing leaders are really hypocrites. They're play actors who perform for the applause and admiration of men, not in order to love and serve God and others. And here, in verse 29 and 30, their hypocrisy is called out for, you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. Now, like so many of Jesus' words, this, these two verses here are loaded with implications. So the question we ask ourselves is, what does it say? We've seen that. Now we ask ourselves, what does it mean? So these scribes and Pharisees, Jesus says, build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous. Well, now that doesn't sound bad, does it? Seems like a nice and honorable thing to do. But... While they're building, while they're decorating, while they're cleaning and whitewashing these tombs, they're proclaiming their innocence in the deaths of these righteous messengers. They say, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. Now, do you see a problem here? These self-righteous, outwardly play-acting religious leaders say they are so much better than their fathers. They are so much better, more morally adept than their ancestors who came before them. We're better than them. We wouldn't have done what they did. They're so much more sophisticated, so much more holy than those who came before them, and they would never have done what those forefathers did. And it's a simple and clear case of arrogance of the present looking back at the past. And in doing so, their self-righteousness is overblown even more. And man, we see this today. We think we're not as sinful as those people in the past. We think we're so much better than they were. But you know what? We all deal with the same sin nature. And we'll talk about that in application. And that sin nature manifests itself in different ways in different ages, different eras. And it's so easy to see the sins of the past... And miss the sins of the present that we're participating in. Newsflash. We've all got blind spots. Every single one of us. You are doing something in your life right now that some people would look and say, Why are you doing that? You can't, that's not right. That's not biblical. That's not Christian. And you're going, huh? We've all got those blind spots. Everybody. Every generation has had them. And I'm not excusing the blind spots of the past and saying we just say, oh, well, they had a blind spot, it's all right. I'm not saying that at all. But to look at them and their sin and say, well, I would have never done that is to neglect the reality of my sin and not pay attention to my sin, which I can remedy and rectify by the power of the Holy Spirit. And especially, we see this, I think, in our time today, and it's been so throughout history, we see it from the younger generation to the older generation. The younger generation looks at the older generation and shakes its head in disgust and says, I can't believe you would have done that, that y'all did that, that y'all grew up like that. that y'all and it's, it's, it's morally reprehensible to me that you could walk like that when you were growing up because I, of course, would never have done that. 
all the while I'm walking in sin too. It's arrogance and pride elevating itself above the fray, above the ignorance and incompetence of the past. And Jesus says it's gross sin. And he clarifies this in verse 31. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Now this is, this is pretty big here. You call out your fathers for murdering the prophets. And in doing so, you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. So this is a spiritual condemnation of this arrogant generation, putting them in the same family as those who killed the prophets in previous generations. Now Jesus has said in the past, in past chapters of Matthew, that these scribes and Pharisees were of their father the devil. And in this chapter, in chapter 23, he has called them sons of hell. And here he says that they are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. Well, whose sons do you think those who murdered the prophets were? They were the devil's sons, children of the devil. So Jesus is saying that these scribes and Pharisees are from a long line of the devil's kids. And the fact that they call the, their fathers from the past murderers just further illustrates that they are of their father and they are the same murderous people that their fathers were. And their fathers were the children of their fathers who were the children of their fathers whose father is the devil. They're lost in their sins. And they are of their father the devil. And they testify to that when they say, We wouldn't have killed the prophets like our fathers did. And Jesus says, you're testifying against yourself, you hypocrites, who say that they wouldn't have killed the prophets and the holy men of old. No, you actually decorate their graves in honor. But in reality, the same sinful blood that flows through their veins is the same sinful blood that spilled the righteous blood of the messengers of God from the past. And by doing so, they implicate themselves and show that they would indeed murder God's messengers. As a matter of fact, they are in that very moment planning on killing not just a messenger of God, but they are plotting and planning how to kill God Himself in the form of Christ. As He blisters them here through these seven woes, they're plotting how to kill Him. While they're saying we would have never killed the prophets and the righteous people that God sent before. But we'll kill you, Jesus. Righteous, holy, son of God, Jesus. Their intense hatred for Jesus is the same hatred that their fathers felt for the prophets. So like father, like son, right? You are of your father, the devil. Jesus is absolutely lowering the boom on them here. And he says that they are witnesses against themselves in all of this. And they were going, oof. (laughs) So then what? Verse 32. And this is, this is a humdinger here. Fill up then the measure of your fathers. Now this looks innocuous enough. But it is a massive right hook by the Savior here. It's massive. 
So they're decorating the tombs and decrying the actions of their fathers, saying they would never do anything so awful as their fathers did killing these holy men. And Jesus says that they are just like their fathers, witnessing against themselves by claiming these killers as their fathers in the first place. So, since that's true, fill up then the measure of your fathers. Well, the picture here is the filling up of a cup. And in the scripture, time and time again, the cup that is being filled up is a cup for judgment. Think the cup of God's wrath. And we see this over and over in the Old Testament, and it's in several places in the New as well. I'm just going to kind of give a quick scan. Four passages. Uh, This is God speaking to Abraham, saying, Your descendants will go down into Egypt, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And that thought pattern there, complete, is filled up. The iniquity of the Amorites is not yet filled up. When that iniquity fills up, then they're going to be judged. Daniel chapter 8. And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, filled up, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. 1 Thessalonians 2, 15 and 16. Who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they might be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them at last. In this familiar passage, Jesus went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, saying, O Father, O my Father, if it is possible, let this cup Pass from me, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. So the picture here of fill up, iniquity not yet complete, transgressors have reached their limit, fill up the measure of their sins, let this cup pass from me. All of this is the same thought pattern as what we see here today in Matthew 23. And what's he referring to? What's he referring to when he says, go ahead and fill up the measure? Of your fathers. He's talking about go ahead and do it, go ahead and kill me. That's what he's referring to. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, fill up the cup, finish this cup, kill me. He's looking them in the face and saying, When you kill me, then the cup will be full, and no more can be contained, then the wrath of God is going to be poured out. Once the cup is full, judgment comes. No more can be held or contained, so it's poured out, and judgment is coming. It can't not come. And that's when God says, Okay, that's enough. I've had enough. And then what? Verse 33. You serpents. You brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? So Jesus is coming full throttle here. He comes out of the full cup fault and calls the scribes and Pharisees, you serpents, you brood of vipers. He's used this appellation for them before, as did John the Baptist. It's a word picture showing them as a big pile of snakes all balled up under a rock, hissing and threatening anyone who comes near them, full of venom and poison and breathing out hate and fear. And being so, being such serpents, being such snakes, being such vipers, how are they to escape being sentenced to hell? How in the world can they escape from hell? And the answer is, they can't. They won't escape 
being sentenced to hell. They are not and they cannot. Judgment is coming and it's coming upon them and all who sin like them. And what's the punishment? How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? That's the wrath of God. Poured out on these snakes for their hate and their murderous legacy. And Jesus is saying, no, you will not escape that sentence. The cup is going to be filled up. You're going to kill me. And the wrath of God is going to come upon you. And you're going to be sentenced to hell. Jesus is looking them in the face and He is saying, You are going to hell! Because you're just like your fathers before you, who were just like their fathers before them, who was just like their father, the devil, who will also be sentenced to hell. How you reckon it feels for the Son of God to look you in the face and say you're going to hell? These folks saw it. You know what? I don't think they felt a thing except anger, hatred. Who does this upstart nobody from Nazareth think he is? We got to kill him. He's way out of line. He's a heretic. He's ruining our religious structures. He's got to die. They weren't sorry. They weren't convicted. They're shaking their fist in his face as he says, You're going to hell. As very God of very God pronounces the judgment of hell upon them, they shake their fist in his face and will run off and plot his death, which will happen in two days from Jesus saying this. Hard hearted. No conviction. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? They can't. The wrath of God is coming upon them, poured out upon them for their hate and their murderous legacy. And that's terrible. But Jesus is not done yet. Watch this, verses 34 and 35. Therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Now, now watch this. I've missed this all my life. I haven't seen this until studying this week, and I didn't have a divine revelation, it's, it's pretty clear when you slow down enough to look at it. Okay, watch this. Therefore, Jesus goes on. Let me go back there. Since they can't and won't escape being sentenced to hell, more is coming. Since they'll fill up the cup, God is going to do something that might seem odd to us. Therefore... I send you prophets and wise men and scribes. And then we go, well, no, wait a minute. That does make sense after all, doesn't it? He's going to send people to warn them to turn, right? Wise men, prophets, scribes, declaring the oracles of God. He's trying to make sure that they have a chance, right? No. He's already condemned them. They can't escape the sentence of hell. He said that they would not and could not escape being sentenced to hell. So here he says, therefore, since you can't escape being sentenced to hell, therefore... I send you prophets and wise men and scribes. 
Since they won't avoid the sentence of hell, therefore these messengers will be sent and some of them will be killed and crucified. Some will be flogged in the synagogues and persecuted from town to town. Now see that connection. You can't escape hell, therefore I'll send messengers. And note the I there. Who's sending the messengers? Jesus is. God is. Jesus, God, is sending these prophets, wise men, and scribes. You can't escape hell, therefore I'll send messengers. You will kill, crucify, flog, and persecute them. And now watch this. So that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth. Now, who, who? <laughs> this is monstrously frightening. So read that again. Therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth. This is awful. This is terrible, terrifying. Jesus tells them the cup of wrath is coming upon them. He slaps the condemnation of hell on them and then warns them that He is sending messengers that they will kill so that the blood of all the righteous people on earth will be credited to them and they'll be held accountable for it. This is big. And then he describes the time frame of the righteous blood that they will be held accountable for, responsible for. From the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah the son of Berechiah whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Now these are two deaths that are bookends of the Old Testament. Okay, Abel we're familiar with, right? The first person to be killed. And why was he killed? Because his worship was received and his brother Cain's was not. And Cain being angry and dejected because he didn't worship well and Abel did, killed his brother. The first person murdered for his worship. Okay? Zechariah was a prophet to the Israelites after the return from the exile. Which was the end time of the Old Testament, right? The Old Testament ends with the the Jews having come back from the Babylonian exile. So at the end of the Old Testament time period, this prophet Zechariah was murdered. Now, we don't know it from the Scriptures, but from Jesus' words, from the Scriptures before this, sorry, but from Jesus' words, it's clear that this Zechariah was killed in the temple between the sanctuary and the altar. And what's he doing? He's worshiping, right? Because he's in the temple. And now this Zechariah at the end of the Old Testament period, worshiping, is murdered for his worship, is murdered because he's a prophet of God, proclaiming anger, wrath, calling for repentance from God, and they killed him as he worshiped. And so these bookends of the Old Testament, Jesus says, from Abel to Zechariah, These two names mark the murderous works of those who hate God and His message from the beginning of the Old Testament with Abel to the return from exile with Zechariah. Jesus is saying that from the beginning of God's work with man all the way through God's dealings with Israel, God's people have been unjustly murdered by false worshipers. But now watch this. And the guilt of all this blood from Genesis 
to past Jesus' time will fall on these hypocrites that he's talking to here. And he's orchestrating things so that this is so. So that. I'm sending prophets, wise men, and scribes so that you may heap up more guilt on yourselves. Not so you'll believe, not so that you might turn, but so that you might be more guilty. It's enough! No more. All of the wrath is going to fall upon them. From Abel to Zechariah to Jesus to the prophets, scribes, and wise men that he'll send after himself. And greater guilt leads to greater, more fearful judgment. Jesus is saying that the past will be credited to their account, the present is being credited to their account, and He is orchestrating things so that in the future, what happens then will be credited to their account as well. And the only thing that will settle their account, that will balance it out, is the very wrath of God against evil, hypocritical, murderous treatment of all the righteous people who have ever been murdered from Abel to Zechariah, from Jesus to those who come and will come after him. So that on them may come all the righteous blood shed on earth. God justly says, enough. And pours his wrath out on them in hell. But... Not just in hell. Look at verse 36, which is our last verse for the day. Truly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Now, before we get into this verse, it's going to be after New Year, Lord willing, before we get into chapter 24 and 25. Okay? We're going to look at Jesus' lament over Jerusalem next week, Lord willing. And then we're going to have a Christmas message. And then we're going to have an end-of-year review, challenge-type message. And that will carry us through the end of the year if all goes as planned. When we get into chapter 24 and 25, Jesus is going to be expounding upon future events, eschatology, end times. And in that... um, lengthy passage, which is going to be fantastic, I'm sure, but hard. He's going to talk about not just what's going to happen in the end times, but he's going to talk about events that are going to come to pass pretty soon after Jesus leaves the earth. And what he's talking about is the destruction of Jerusalem. Okay? So, when we look at this verse, truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. He's preparing them for what he's about to go through in chapter 24, in 25. And he says, truly, which means we would say amen, so be it, I, the Son of God, God in the flesh, truly I tell you, all these things will come upon this generation. Now, to set the stage for chapters 24 and 25... I can't help but interpret this literally. Okay? All these things relates back to the prophets and wise men and scribes being mistreated and killed, and then the wrath of God being poured out on these scribes and these Pharisees 
For all the righteous blood spilled from the beginning of time until then, and then after then even, all these things will come upon this generation. And the most disturbing of all these things is the judgment, the woes coming upon religious Israel, upon national Israel, because of all that has happened, all that Jesus is speaking to. Okay, Because of all the righteous blood that they had spilled, God's enough is going to be proclaimed to the generation that Jesus is speaking to. Why them? Well, first of all, they're going to kill Jesus. That's a pretty big deal. God shows up and you kill him, or try to kill him. He does die, but he doesn't stay dead. That's a pretty big deal. Not only rejecting their Messiah and God's plan of redemption, but also brutally persecuting God in the flesh. Ultimately, their rejection and their persecution is against God Himself, and woe upon the generation that meets out that mistreatment. Now, some folks have said that generation here in this passage can refer to the race of mankind, like we are the generation of human beings. Generation refers to humans as a race. Like all these things will come upon the race of man, this generation, this group of homo sapiens, let's say. But I can't see that or find it here. The concept of generation here is pretty clearly the group of people who are living at that time. Jesus is saying that God's wrath will be poured out on these people in their natural lifetimes. And you know what? It was. When the Romans swept in on this group of people in 70 A.D., so 66 A.D., which would have been 30 plus years after Jesus ascended into heaven, after being crucified, buried, resurrected. 66 A.D., the Jews revolt against Rome. And they actually get their independence for a few years. And then in 70 A.D., the Romans come in and they massacre this group of people. That Jesus is speaking to. Ethnic, national Israel. The Romans came in in 70 AD and decimated them. Almost literally wiped them completely out of existence. Estimates are that over 1.1 million Jews were killed. And that another over 100,000 were taken prisoner in this siege in AD 70 taken prisoner to become forced laborers or gladiators for the Colosseum, wherein they would be killed by the other gladiators or eaten by wild animals in that arena. The temple was burned. The holy utensils were paraded through the streets and put on display for all to see. The Romans even minted coins from all the spoils that they took from the Jews. And the coins had an inscription that read, Judea Capta which means Judea captured. And after 70 AD, y'all, there's no Israel until May 14th, 1948. Almost 2,000 years. God picked up the cup that was full of the blood of righteous people and He poured it out and He said, That is enough. And he wiped them off the face of the earth. Almost completely. This generation. 
All of that fell, like Jesus said, on that generation. And for so many of them, that was just the beginning of their woes. As they would be cast into eternal punishment for leaning on their own external righteousness and not the gifted righteousness given as a result of the work of the Son of God on behalf of His children. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Woe indeed. Enough indeed. That's heavy, y'all. But like always, we have to ask what all this means for us today. Jesus did not speak these words to us. He spoke them to the scribes and Pharisees in that generation. But there is meaning for us. There are principles, things that we should apply from what we've learned today. So, in application, and the good Baptist preacher in me, comes down to three application points, right? We could do a lot more, by the way. But we've got three E's today. E-E-E. Ego. Embellish. E-M-B-E-L-L-I-S-H. Embellish. And what's the third one? Enough. Ego, embellish, and enough. How do we apply this passage? Which was not spoken to us, but was recorded for us. First of all, ego. What's the application point for ego? It's what we talked about earlier. The danger of exalting ourselves above those before us. Looking back in arrogance at people from the past for the sins of the past. Now listen, let me be clear here. I am not saying we should not call sin, sin. Okay, We should look back and look at sins from the past. Holocausts, racism, slavery, things like that. And say that was sin. We should do that. What we should not do is look back at it with arrogance, exalting ourselves above the people who did those things. Because you know what we do when we do that? We deny our own sin. I'm not like them. I would not have done what they did. We wouldn't have killed the prophets, the Pharisees said. And here's the deal. We all share the same sin principle, the same sin nature from Adam and Eve forward. And here's where we talk about total inability, total depravity. David said in Psalm 139, In sin my mother conceived me. He didn't say that he, that he was born out of wedlock. He's saying, I was conceived and I was a sinner when I was conceived. And if I think that I'm better than the people from the past, or that I've evolved upward to a better plane, I'm elevating myself while devaluing them. Because I can point at their sin and I can see it and I can point at it and say, look what they did, look what they did, look what they did. And you know what I'm not doing? Look what I do. It's arrogant. It's prideful. It's falsely judgmental. Not false because it didn't happen, but false because we act like what we're doing is not happening. Let me read you this. What then? Paul says in Romans 3, he's talking about the sins of the Gentiles first. And he says, are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we've been, we have already charged that all, 
Both Jews and Greeks are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. Let me just parenthesize that for a second, which is not a word, but I just made it one. Some people say, man, that person's really seeking God. No, they're not. Nobody seeks for God. We want to be seeker-friendly in our services. No, we don't. Because then we're just catering to sinners who are sinning. We want to call them out of their sin. Not affirm their seekingness because no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave and they're filling mine, our. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive the venom of asps. There's that snake language again, is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There's no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law speaks, it speaks to those who are under the law. So that every mouth may be stopped. And the whole world may be held accountable to God. We think we're so much more sophisticated than these Pharisees and their pride. Or we're so much more advanced than our American forefathers who were guilty of some heinous sins. We think that we've arrived at a place in time where we're so morally superior than all who've gone before us. But let me tell you something. We deal with the very same sin nature that Abel dealt with. That Cain dealt with. We deal with the same sin nature that those of Noah's day dealt with. We deal with the same sin nature that those in Sodom dealt with. We deal with the same sin nature that the Pharisees dealt with. That George Washington dealt with. But we say, well I would have never done the things that they were guilty of. And in doing so we decorate the tombs of the prophets. Exalting ourselves when we should be humbling ourselves. We as Christians are doing things in our day and time that would have made our forefathers and our ancestors blush. And we call it fun. Or we call it entertainment. Or we call it health care. Or acceptance. And the root of it all, for them, for us, then and now, the root of it all is sin. And all of us deal with it and have to be honest about it. Not exalt ourselves over those before us because we're in a better place. We're not in a better place. We deal with the same sin. But we tend to gloss it over. Which is our second application point. Embellish. Ego. We're prideful. We're arrogant because we're better than somebody. And then we embellish our sins. To embellish means... To make something look better. And we have a very persistent tendency. Me, I have a very persistent tendency. We have a very persistent tendency to not only compare ourselves favorably to those before us. But we also tend to make light of our sins. We put lipstick on our pig, so to speak. And we explain how it's not so bad. Or that it's not even sin at all. In our ego, we say we're better than our ancestors. And in our embellishment, we make sin disappear. But this is a deadly mistake. Watch this. We see this in Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 5, 1-8. through 8. 
It is actually reported, Paul says to the Corinthians, that there is sexual immorality among you and one of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Now we've talked about, we've used this in application many times before. Okay, and, and what's going on here? And we'll finish the thought in a minute. This guy's sleeping with his father's wife, which is not his mother, but is kind of his mother, and it's incredibly gross. And the Corinthians are like, "Hey, we're open to this. We embrace this diversity, inclusion. It's our brother. It's not sin. He's just enjoying himself. He's just." Being him. And Paul said, What? Not only are you not sorry, you're boasting about it. We're inclusive. We're prideful. Look how accepting we are of people's behavior. Look how well we love people. And Paul says, Turn him over to Satan so that he can be killed. Killed. That's what destruction of the flesh means. So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. This guy needs to die because he's unrepentantly sinning. And the church needs to be the one who hands him over to this destruction. Now look around, church. You ever seen anything like this? In the current, present day church? Where a church says, get out, stay out, go die. Because this is what we've got to do to our sin. Paul says this. Your boasting is not good. Why? Watch this. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Paul said, remove the sinner from your midst so that the sin might be out of your midst so that you can celebrate purely the grace of God. But we tolerate sin and we embellish it, we dress it up and call it love. Paul said, cut the cancer out, get it out of your body because it's going to kill you. And here's the application for us. We have to call sin, sin. You're like, you say this every week. Maybe I have to. We've got to call sin, sin. And then we've got to deal with it as the deadly anti-God act that it is. Private sin, public sin, arrogant sin, ignorant sin. It's all sin. And we have to hate it. Not excuse it or ignore it or dress it up and act like we don't like it when we really do. And this is true for our own sin. And here's the deal, and for the sin of those around us. I said, don't point at the sins of the past and elevate yourself above those people. But I also said, we can't not point out their sin. 
We just aren't arrogant and prideful saying we're better than them because we're not. We have to call out the sin that's within us and we have to call out the sin of those around us. Dismissing it, embellishing it, lessening it, all of this leads to a leaven-like spread that destroys the one sinning and those around him or her. And that's all of us. We need to take a hard, prayerful, biblical look at our lives beginning with ourselves, and cut out the cancerous sin that infects us. The lump is not just going to go away. Stop putting makeup on it and dressing it up so that people don't notice it. Stop accentuating it so that people won't look at it and celebrate sin, which is what we do in our culture today. We can't do those things because at some point for everyone, for the world... Individually and collectively, if we don't deal with our sin, God is going to say what? Enough. Ego, embellish, enough. There will reach a point, and it's foreordained by God, when God is going to say, it's enough. Have you read the book of Revelation? It's what it's about, partially. His victory over sin in the world that He created. And we see it all through the Scripture. God despises sin. And one of the sins that God particularly despises is the shedding of righteous or innocent blood. Watch this. Genesis 9-6. Whoever sheds the blood of man... By man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. Exodus 23, 7. Keep far from a false charge, and do not kill the innocent and righteous, for I will not acquit the wicked. God said it from the beginning, in the Decalogue, in, 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 in the Torah, in the first five books of the Bible. God made it clear that he will not acquit the wicked who kill the innocent and the righteous. He's like, well, we went from cleansing our own sin to talking about shedding innocent blood, right? Here we stand, here we sit, here we are at this point of history. Is there injustice going on in our world today? Yeah, you bet there is. Is innocent and righteous blood being shed in our world today? You bet it is. And you're like, you're talking about abortion. Oh, um, yeah, and other things. It's not just abortion. I think, I think as the church, we, we are guilty of isolating abortion as the only shedding of innocent blood, and it's not. It's, it's heinous, and it's horrific, and it should be pointed out, but not singled out. There are innocent people who get killed. And it's a hot-button topic in our world today, isn't it? You're like, preacher, where are you going with this? I'm going here with this. God hates the shedding of innocent blood. And here's the deal. God is going to judge the wicked who shed innocent blood. So what do we do? What's our application point here? We start with ourselves. And if you'll remember back in the Sermon on the Mount, to be angry with your brother is the same as what? Murder. 
Anybody murdered their brother recently? Anybody been angry at their brother recently and nursed that anger and acted in that anger or stewed in that anger? We start with ourselves and we cut out the leavenous lump in our own hearts, in our own minds, in our own actions, and then we move out to address the injustices of the world in our towns, in our cities, in our state, in our nation, in the world where innocent blood is being shed. And we address it. And we cry out for innocent blood. We cry out for the innocent. We petition for the innocent. You say, what's that look like? I think it looks like a lot of different things. I think we do actively stand against abortion. I think we actively do look at these things that are happening in the media and in the news and align ourselves with the justice of God, not our personal preferences. That's hard for me. You're like, well, the media narrative. Stop it with the media narrative. We know what they're doing, okay? We're not blind. We're not stupid. We know that they're slanted. We know that they're biased. So stop blaming everything on the media. Look in your own heart, at your own slant, at your own sin, and address that. And let me ask you the question as we finish this application point in this message. Do you care that innocent blood is being shed? Because if you don't, that's sinful. That's sinful negligence. Stand up for the innocent. Cry out for justice against the wicked. Whatever form that wickedness takes. This is not a one tug, okay, this is easy, I'll do this today. This takes a lot of heart searching. Because I want you to hear me say today, God is going to say enough. Now, in Christ, there is no condemnation. I'm not trying to scare you and say if you don't care about justice, then then you may not be saved and you better really search your heart. You need to do that for sure. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. But as God's people, judgment begins in the household of God. We start within ourselves, individually, and then collectively, and then we move out into the world and we cry out for justice. Justice for the righteous, justice for the weak, justice for those who did not deserve to die. Because watch this. Revelation 6, When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign God, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, filled up, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. First application here in this application point is, I think we've got to cry out this prayer. Oh God, how long? Oh sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood and the blood of these innocent saints on those who dwell on the earth? We should cry out for the vengeance of God. 
So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the great harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. This is going to happen. So what do we do? We petition and we cry out to God and we preach the gospel to men that they might escape the wrath that is coming. We cry out for justice. We cry out for the justice of God and the holiness of God to be vindicated in our day and age. And we petition men and women, please flee from the wrath of God to come. Confess your sins. Confess your sinfulness. Confess your need for a Savior and look to Christ alone as that Savior because only that will rescue from the sure wrath of God that is coming on the day when God says, that's enough. Do you care about the innocents who are being killed? Do you care about the souls of men and women who will suffer the righteous wrath of God in the end times? Church, we have to. He's not going to do it any other way. He's going to make his petition as we preach the gospel and no other way. Do you care? And do you vindicate the righteous judgment of God that it's right for him to say that's enough? No more innocent blood is going to be spilled. We're done with that. And one day the good news. He's going to make all things new. There'll be no more injustice. There'll be no more innocent blood spilled. And we will worship Him forever in His presence, proclaiming the goodness of His glory, His wrath, His judgment, and His grace. Don't let your ego get in the way. Don't embellish your own sins. Know that enough is going to be proclaimed. And cry out to people to be reconciled to a holy God. Let's pray. Father, I don't know why you've put up with us this long. It's your plan and your plan is perfect. Your way is perfect. And I trust you. But how long, oh God? How long... Until your righteous judgment comes and makes all things right. We cry out for that day. We look forward to the second coming of Christ this Advent season. Knowing that when he comes, he will put all things in subjection under his feet. And he will reign and rule in righteousness and holiness and justice. And we long to see it. And I pray that we would long to see men and women reconciled to God so that they would be longing for it as well. We are not better than sinners. We're saved by your grace, by your doing, for your glory. Help us to address our sins, looking past ourselves to the holiness of Christ. And may we point people to him in a continuing effort to see grace poured out and justice finally done. We need your help, God, and we ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and receive a benediction as we finish today? Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. 
To the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. And all God's people said, Amen. You're dismissed if you want to congregate and talk. It's a little cool out there, but head out there.